It's good to be here with you all tonight. I got to preach here four or five months ago, and it was a privilege, and I'm glad to be able to come back and worship with you all. My wife and I had an evening service when we were in Charlotte, North Carolina, and we miss having one. So to close out the Lord's Day with worship is a treat. Uh, If you will, please stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be looking tonight at 1 Thessalonians 5. Chris, I told you something different. Sorry, I changed last minute. We'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 through 24. This is the Word of God. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body Be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. The word that is sufficient. The word that is clear. The word that is powerful. The word that creates in us clean hearts. Father, I pray that as we worship you, that as we attend to your word, that not only would we learn of your power and of your might and of your promises, but in turn that we would receive them, that we would trust them, and even as we sang, that we would obey you in light of these promises, knowing that you are our God and that you are faithful. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. may be seated. First, I just want to say I love the sound of kids running around, especially on the hardwood floor. It's great. Echoes nicely. My church has many children, and it is a joy to hear them running around, and it's a good, a good problem to have. Um, well, a few months ago, last month, last July, um, my church, Reformation Covenant, We went on our family camp. We do that every year. We go to Twin Rocks Fellowship, Twins uh, Friends Camp out um, in Tillamook area. And we just spend the week together. We sing together. We eat together. We play sports together. We do a number of things. And um, this is a fam. as my family is our second time to go. And uh, we went a few years ago when my son was young. And when we first went, the advice we got was pace yourself. Just pace yourself. Don't need to do everything. There's plenty of time to take care of everything that you want to do. Um, We normally spend time at the beach. People stay up late. You exhaust yourself, and by the end of the week, you don't know what hits you, and you're just down for several days. There have been plenty of stories of illnesses breaking out. The norovirus broke out once and everyone was down. It was very bad. Um, First time we went, I made it to Friday and then I collapsed and I didn't get out of bed for three days. Uh, So we were told to pace ourselves. And as my wife and I were driving a month ago to camp, I looked at her and I said, are we going to make it? We now have three kids. Uh, We have a six-month-old, a two-year-old, and a four-year-old. And we have more friends. We, we have that zest that only parents of young children have when their kids go down. Are we going to make it? And she said, yes, we're going to pace ourselves. We'll be fine. We did make it, but barely. 
Um, but I think for many of us, as we mature through life, as we go through the Christian walk, as we see our own growth and holiness and development and grace, that question, will we make it? How are we going to do this? It's the same question we have about our Christian lives. We see family and friends walk away from the faith. We, we see people who, by our own estimation, were better Christians. They're smarter, more successful, and they walk away. We know in our hearts we've got temptations to sin, to get ahead. We want to leave behind that narrow path that Jesus calls us to. And instead, we want to see what's in that broad path. And on top of that, there's the doubts that we all feel. Not necessarily the intellectual doubts, so much as the inexpressible doubts, the the things that just don't feel right, things that we can't answer. So we ask ourselves, are we going to make it? Am I going to make it? Life goes on, hardships arise. You know yourself, I know myself. I know how fickle my heart can be. I know how ready I am to go after the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. We know the words of that hymn, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So we ask ourselves, when's the shoe going to drop for me? Or when's the shoe going to drop for my kids or for my spouse? Will I be like all the other ones who fall away? Maybe a more precise way to ask that question is, given all of my weaknesses, given all of your weaknesses, given all of our predilections, what assurance do we have that at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, how do we know that we'll be counted among the faithful? How do we know that we will see Jesus Now, the question that we're asking there is what theologians and church confessions have generally called the doctrine of perseverance, or as some people prefer, the doctrine of preservation of the saints. If you think back to your early cage stage days, it's that P at the end of tulip. Now, the doctrine of the Perseverance or preservation of the saints says simply that those who are in Christ, those who are justified in Christ, those who have been sanctified in Christ, the gift that comes with Christ is the gift of perseverance, that you'll see yourself all the way through. But we see, like I've said, people fall away all the time. So how do we know? How do we know? And I think the, Paul gives us an answer to that question. He gives us an answer to that question. But the Bible as a whole, it really gives two answers to that question. The first answer it gives is that assurance is given to those who persevere. You you, you know you'll persevere when you do it. And this is often in the message of, of the book of Revelation. It's the faithful are the ones who endure to the end. They're called faithful. In the Christian life, the Christian will renewed. And enlightened in Christ, it's a real and essential factor to the integrity and sanctity of God's people. 
In Revelation, we see that Christ promises rewards to the seven churches, to those who conquer. And throughout Scripture, specific commands are given that we should be holy, even as God is holy. In fact, just in the book, the letter, the first letter of the Thessalonians, Paul makes the same case. What's the will of God? It's your sanctification. You know how to control your own body and holiness. It calls them to a very specific manner of Christian living, one for which they and you and I are very much responsible. But the Bible also gives a second answer to the question, the question of how we can be confident that we'll make it. And the second answer is this, is that assurance comes and is available because God himself, God himself preserves us in holiness because he is faithful. That's what Paul tells us, that the reason we can know is because God is faithful. That's how we know. When viewed from the perspective of eternity, we are told that is God has revealed to us that as much as we're commanded to persevere, as much as we're commanded to strive after God, to cling to him, to cling to his promises, we're told that the corollary to this is that what we see when viewed from eternity is that God is the one preserving us. God is the one enabling us to persevere. God is the one working salvation in us according to his will and good pleasure. So let's take a look at this text and see what it gives us in terms of this question. As Paul closes his first letter to the church in Thessaloniki, he ends by reminding them of the truth of God's activity and salvation. As I already said, throughout the letter, he's encouraged them to pursue sanctification, to walk in a manner pleasing to God. God has elected them. God has called them. And if we were just to read the letter... We would largely say that the emphasis that Paul has for the Thessalonians falls on them. The emphasis of responsibility falls on them. The will is God, of God is their sanctification. And they are to control their own bodies. They are to pursue brotherly love. However, when Paul concludes his letter, he doesn't just simply reiterate what he's said. Rather, the conclusion recasts everything he's taught them in a new light. Paul recasts it so that the spotlight shines on God, the initiator and perfecter of our salvation. That is, Paul, considering the faith, the endurance, the sanctification of the Thessalonian church, their continuation in the work of calling and election that God performed, from the perspective of eternity, places the emphasis now not on the Thessalonians, as it has for most of the letter, but now on God. The work is done by God himself for the express reason that he is faithful to his people in order that they might be sanctified, in order that they might be cleansed from sin, they might be set apart for the work that God has set apart for them to do. Now, as Paul begins this benediction, and that's what it is, the very first word that he writes, not in the English, but in the Greek, is himself. It's the word he writes. In English, we see now, 
But in the Greek, it's the personal pronoun, he or himself. So lest the Thessalonians are tempted to think otherwise, Paul organizes this benediction so that the emphasis is clear. He starts with God himself. There is no other God who might be working but the living God who called them, the God who dwells in eternity. And that God who made all things by the word of his power, who raised Jesus from the dead, who controls all things, whose will is unbreakable, that God, that's the God that Paul is telling them is tending to these things, God himself. And by saying it that way, he's implying, not you. You're doing this, but it's actually God himself doing this. Now, there are a couple different ways that we could hear this language of himself. One of them is incorrect. When we think something's being done poorly, we may think something like, I'll just do it myself. We snatch it away from the person who's doing it. And we go about doing it the way that we want to do it. That's not the way that God approaches our sanctification. God is not critical of us and therefore takes it out of his hands. Rather, the other way to think about this, when we think about the language of God himself working in our sanctification, working in our preservation, is the idea of someone whose personal involvement expresses a deep concern and care for the finished product. It's the boss who continues to work on the floor because he enjoys the work. It's the craftsman who, though he could craft more with machinery, prefers to do it by his hands because he loves to see the finished product. It's a work done out of delight, not out of frustration. So God himself has willed your sanctification. He has called you and chosen you because he loves you, because he delights in you. And because of that, he has a vested interest in what the final product is. He has a vested interest in who you are and who you will be. But he isn't concerned about margins. He's not concerned about overhead. He delights in you. He rejoices over you with singing. And because you are the object of his delight, his concern is to see you perfected and completed. That's the very nature of his love. It creates, and it recreates, it sustains, and it preserves. What God calls you to do, he gives to you everything necessary to achieve it. You're justified by faith, but faith itself is a gift of God. You're called to be holy, but you've already been sanctified in Christ. Scripture tells you to run the race that has been set before you, but it also says that God is the one who's able to keep you from stumbling. So the whole dynamic of the Christian life is one balanced by real human responsibility. Work out your own salvation, fear and trembling. And also at the same time, real divine sovereignty, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Even in the book of Revelation, the answer to the question we saw was that it's the faithful who persevere. You know you'll persevere when you do it. Even in Revelation, only those whose names are written in the book of life are those who persevere. 
Those whose names were not written in the book of life before the foundation of the world were the ones who worshipped the false beast. Your obedience, your faithfulness, your endurance, they're truly the result of your activity in the world. Those who fall away are truly responsible for their apostasy. And yet, your obedience, your faithfulness, and your endurance are also truly the result of God's work. Even work that was done before the foundations of the world were set. So to denigrate one for the sake of the other is to depart from scriptural teaching. God himself is sanctifying you and you are being kept even while you pursue holiness and keep yourself from sin. Now many have taken what I'm saying here, have taken this and understood this so that it allows for presumption. In the South, in the Bible Belt where I'm from, it's common to hear the refrain, once saved, always saved which is true if understood correctly, but from the mouth of these people, they're people living like pagans, doing whatever they want, who made a profession, and trust that. Once saved, always saved. So that regardless of what you do, regardless of what you say, that you, simply because you made a profession, are saved. But such thinking could not be further from the truth, nor from what the Scriptures teach concerning how and why we persevere, how and why it is that God saves us. And this mischaracterization is corrected just by noting what Paul requests on behalf of the Thessalonian church. Look, he says very clearly, may God, the God of peace himself sanctify you. More than that, he says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole body, soul, and spirit be kept blameless. And Paul's saying is that God's work of preserving you, God's work of sanctifying you is just that. It has a specific purpose in mind. It's the fulfillment of His will in their lives, which as I've said before, as Paul says in chapter 4 of this epistle, is holiness. Peter writes in his epistle that we are a people of God's own possession, chosen to be a holy nation. God chose you. He called you. He sustains you so that you might be a people that bear His name, that proclaim His excellencies, that delight in His law. And your sustenance in grace, your abiding in Christ, should result in a growth in grace. It should result in the fruit of the Spirit. It should result in holiness. Just as Paul says, Seen from the perspective of Paul's benediction, the growth you demonstrate is evidence of God's preserving work in you. It's evidence of God's preserving work in you. It's not proof, but it's evidence. This does not mean, or is not meant to suggest, that you can achieve perfection. Many saints have fallen into that trap. Preservation of the saints does not preclude us from falling into sin, even sometimes grievous sins. But it does preclude us remaining in that sin.
if we presume upon God's grace that we can therefore walk how we would like, we actually miss the whole point of God's work in our lives. We miss the whole point of why we made a profession. We miss the whole point of what Jesus came to do. Because it's God's kindness that's meant to lead us to repentance, as Paul says. Kids, speak to you for a second. You know your mommy and your daddy love you very much. There's nothing that you could do, nothing that you could do that would separate that your lo- their love from you, nothing that, that you could do to make you not their child. But does that give you the right or the freedom to just behave however you want? Do you not have to obey your parents in the Lord for this is right? I'm sure many of you are working on that as a memory verse. As my kids are. No, in fact, it's the freedom that you feel in that love. It's knowing that your mommy and daddy love you that much that should empower you to want to obey, that their love will never leave you. There's nothing you could do. And that should make you so grateful to respond in obedience. Husbands and wives, the vow that your spouse made to you to remain with you Does that mean that you get to now do whatever you want? No. In fact, if you think that, you've misunderstood the purpose of the vows. It's the freedom you have in that vow that's supposed to create, inspire a faithful response. It's the love your wife has for you husbands that is supposed to create your love. And wives, it's the love your husbands have for you that's supposed to create your love and your faithfulness for him. So it is with God. The faithfulness that Paul talks about here is not meant to allow us an easy path. It's not meant to allow us simply to presume upon God's kindness, but it is supposed to empower us, to encourage us that even in our hardships, even in our difficulties, even when we are weak, He is faithful. What's interesting is in all of his letters, in all of of Paul's um, correspondence, Paul does something very interesting here. It's it's unique in all 13 of his letters that we have. One of the the good things about Paul is since he wrote so many letters, we can read his letters and we can see what his stereotypical writing styles are, how he composes a letter, how he thinks about a letter, how he goes about writing it. We can see that because he's written so many. And what's important about that is when he deviates from a style or from a convention, that deviation is loaded with significance. Because it's not just a stroke of his pen. It's, it's an intentional change from what he normally does. Here's what he does in this letter that's interesting. He goes on to explain to confirm the benediction. Every other benediction, he simply gives the benediction and lets it go. But here, he takes a, makes a conscious choice 
to elaborate on, to confirm what it is that he's just told the Thessalonians. So after writing the benediction, he says this, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say God might do it. He doesn't say God may do it if. Nor does he say, if you work hard enough, God will do this. That's not what he says. He says God will surely do it. No questions asked. It is an irrevocable promise that he has made to you. In the Old Testament, this picture of God's faithfulness, it's tied directly to his covenants. And we love covenants, right? We're good Presbyterians. We love seeing the scope of God's covenants in Scripture. Those are made to the people of his choosing. Those are promises he makes to the people he loves. God is by nature faithful. That's what Paul's saying. He is faithful, simply put. But we are not. We are actually, by nature, and apart from the grace of God, we're actually quite unfaithful. So when we're talking about God's work in preserving us, God's work in enabling us to persevere, we're talking about God simply being true to who He is. We're simply talking about God being the God that He says He is. He cannot be tr- but be true to who he is, just as you can't be true but be true to that. He, but you are. You, you get what I'm saying. For Paul, that's enough. For Paul, that's all the proof and that's all the assurance that the Thessalonian church needs. So when he concludes his letter, that's how he ends. How do they? What do they need to know? You know city that hates them, surrounded by persecutors, surrounded, no doubt, by people falling away, returning back to their paganism. What do the Thessalonian church need to know? They need to know that God is faithful. What do we need to know? What do we need to know that we'll make it? What do we need to know that we can be sure that we'll be found in Jesus Christ, despite what we know to be our unfaithfulness? And the answer that Paul gives the Thessalonians is the same answer Paul would have us to know. That God is faithful. So why is it that you haven't left when all your friends have? Why is it that you remain committed to Christ in a world falling apart? The answer is very simple. It's not you, it's God who is faithful. Why do you keep coming to church? Why do you keep clinging to the promises of God even though there's still doubts in the back of your mind? It's because God is faithful. Now the Bible gives us plenty of instructions on how to obey God. In here we have everything we need for life and for godliness. But what the Bible says again and again and again and again and again is that we cannot start with our own free will. We don't start with ourselves because you don't have the resolve to stick it out. 
as tough as you may be, you don't. Apart from the promises of God, which are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, killing sin, hating sin, it will be an impossible battle. But if you want to be holy, if you want to grow in grace, if you want to overcome those secret sins that always seem to make their way back into your life, you start with this. You actually start with where Paul ends. That God is faithful, and He will surely, without a doubt, sanctify you completely. Let's pray. Father, we thank You so much for the promises that You are faithful. More than that, You're faithful to an unfaithful people. And how marvelous, how inscrutable, how incomprehensible are the riches of Your grace that you and your kindness would choose people like us, not only to save us, but to preserve us and to sanctify us and to see us through and to keep us from stumbling. Father, I pray that as we go out this week, as we go out into a world that hates us, as we go out into a world filled with sin, as we go out into a world that we feel our own hearts pining after, that you would remind us again and again that you are faithful, that we can find comfort in knowing that you do what you say you will do. Lord, give us comfort and assure us of your grace. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.